Hey folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build Along. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and this is the show where we build an entire campaign from scratch for any interested group to run. This season is all about the Fallout role-playing game, so if you don't already have your copy of the rules, drop by your local game or bookshop, or hit up the Modifius Entertainment website, M-O-D-I-P-H-I-U-S dot net. For the first time in a while, I don't have a list of corrections to make at the beginning of this week's show, so let's cut the chit-chat and get down to building. First, though, we recap what we built last week. The early part of that build was the group downloading and checking out the various pieces of information they'd acquired, and all they got that was immediately actionable was the fact that the dome job was ordered by Barnabas O'Reilly, and he apparently used synths for the job. The group headed to the Hill neighborhood and checked out iRobotics. Depending on how things went, they either had a pleasant conversation and ultimately got the address for where the information was delivered, or they got kicked out of the office without the info, or they fought a bunch of synths and maybe got the info, because if they killed all the synths, the thought is they could possibly download the info from Mr. Aston. Anyway, once they got the location of the drop-off, they headed to that location, fought some super mutants, and got away with the drive containing the info taken from Jessup Chemical's dome location. We ended the build with the group heading to wherever they would go to check out that information they'd retrieved. Unfortunately, there's not much here that the group didn't already know. Apparently, while the dome facility was in charge of creating additives to introduce into the food chain, you know, to make the population more compliant, they didn't actually manufacture anything there. As best as they could tell, the teams at the dome created the formulas, but where the actual products are produced is somewhere else, and nothing they see in what they got tells them where that facility is. And since they've already been in the Union Station facility at this point, they can be 99.99% sure that that is not the location. Which means they've got a facility they can't account for and no easy way to figure it out. Which also means that for the moment, they're at a dead end. This would be a good time for the group to have a day or so of downtime since they've been running nonstop since we started the campaign. This would be a good time for them to utilize armor, weapon, and chemical stations, which Victor has and will readily grant them access to, scavenge for materials or a location for their own safe house base of operations, they're not already using the one we basically provided to them, or just rest and recuperate after everything they've been through. This would also be a good time to go check on Corinth and Igmon, if they lived. They're staying at Victor's place for a bit as they're still healing up. They're appreciative for what the group did for them and promise them that they'll find a way to make it up to you. And this isn't an option. We're forcing the group to take a little downtime to get their stuff together. And to be fair, we'll go with a day, though if they want or need a second, do that. This would also be a good time to level your group up, because it just occurred to me we've done a lot of stuff since the last time we leveled up, so let's level up before we start them back up. Now, the morning after they've taken their time off, they're approached by a messenger from Victor who informs them that Victor has requested they meet with him at their earliest convenience. The messenger doesn't know why Victor wants to see them, but he got the impression that it was fairly important. Now, if the group's been staying in Diamond Pass, Bruno will be the messenger. If not, just make it some nameless, faceless human working for some caps. That's your call, obviously. Heading back to Victor's, things go as they usually do. Bruno meets them, takes them back to the office, makes them wait while he tells Victor they're there, and then lets them into the office. They see something they're not quite accustomed to when they enter the office. Victor's on his feet, pacing nervously back and forth behind his desk. 
He motions for the group to take seats. Then he takes his own, though it's, again, obvious he's very nervous. When he speaks, he's very much to the point. You have a problem. Apparently, Barnabas O'Reilly has become aware of the job you pulled on the hill. He has put a 250 cap bounty on each of your heads. The only good thing about that is he wants you all alive or there will be no payment. While he's uncertain as to how O'Reilly found out, he has his suspicions. You dealt with synths. My guess would be that one of them told Barnabas about your meeting, and he's no idiot, so he put one and one together and got to you. He gives the group a moment to process what he's told them, and then he has a couple of options for them. The way I see it, there are three options you have. The first choice would be to eliminate Barnabas O'Reilly and cancel your debt. Would be a bold choice, but a bloody one. He has many super mutants guarding him and his office all day long, and it's reported he has even more of them guarding his house at night. Would be a bloodbath of epic proportions, and I do not know if you would all survive it. Option two would be for me to give you a job that sends you out of the downtown area for a day or so, because it would buy me the time to work with other interested parties to convince Barnabas that calling off the bounty would be a wise choice for him. Now, he seems very hesitant to give him the third option, but he finally shrugs and offers it up. You do have a third option. Melanie Zombrowski is a friend of Barnabas, though they are also occasional business rivals. If anyone could convince him to cancel contract without bloodshed, it would be her. He makes it a point to look each of them in the eyes before he continues. Big problem with this one is that if she decides the bounty is big enough, she might consider handing you over herself. But... They have a love-hate relationship sometimes, and I have come to understand that it is at a hate stage right now. It's obvious he doesn't like any of the options, and he will make that plain. It is, as Igmon said to me once, is like eating a shit burger and having to like the taste. He lets the group know he doesn't need a decision right at the moment, but he also strongly urges the group to not leave the pass while they're making their decision. Inside these walls, I can protect you and guarantee your safety. Out there... Out there, you are on your own. He doesn't have a whole lot of specifics on the contracts other than what he's told him already, but the group can safely assume that every conceivable group of mercs, synths, raiders, and such will be on the lookout for them because even a four-person group would bring in a thousand caps, which isn't anything to sneeze at. Oh, and if you want to increase that bounty to really drive the point home, double it. Since the group has three options, we'll build them out one at a time, starting with the first one. When they announce their intentions to take out O'Reilly, Victor will shake his head, but it's not in disappointment. It's not going to be easy, but I would suggest best time to do it is during the day. He will be at Opera House, and you already know which office is his. It will have to be frontal assault, because he had window washers rig removed after you were there last time. Unless you want to try to get in through auditorium, though I would suggest against that. If they ask why, he'll be plain about it. Lots of feral ghouls in there. Supposedly, there is stash of weapons and caps so big it would change your lives, but nobody who has gone in there to look for it has ever come back out. I had associate look inside doors one time. He told me he heard noises of many ghouls, but did not stick around long enough to find out how many, so I would not go in that way. He will make the group an offer, though. I have some fragmentation grenades that happened to be lost from a shipment recently. They are not much, but I would be willing to let you have them in exchange for a courier job for me when you are finished. They agree. He'll give them enough frag grenades for each member of the group to have two. Stats for frag grenades are on page 120. 
He's also willing to work with the group to plan out their assault, which basically gives you as the GM the opportunity to work with your group to have the plan that makes the absolute best sense possible before they head out. However, that does not mean you got to give them the keys to the castle. I'd just listen as they talk amongst themselves and offer advice if something seems exceptionally bad. Oh, and Victor would pull out a schematic of the building for the group to check out. Now, if they decide to get cute and decide to try a sewer entrance, Victor will note that I would not do that if I were you. Rad scorpions and mirelocks are reported to thrive down there. Would not want to be badly damaged before you even get chance to take out some super mutants. So, frontal assault it is. Much as we've discussed previously, during the day there are two super mutants on the door and two across the street. We're going to do a bit of a swap out here though, because I'm adjusting what kind of mutants these are. All four of these are super mutant brutes. They've got their boards and pipe rifles, and they look mean as all get out. Their stats are on page 368. Now, once they get through that, they can get in the front door. And I could work this out hallway by hallway and floor by floor, but the gist of it is this. There are three floors to the opera house, and there are stairwells on the east and west ends of the building headed up. We know where O'Reilly's office is on the third floor, and the group will remember that the office next to his has a secret passage that connects them. Now, I realize I'm changing up the protections inside the building, but it would make sense since the building's already been burglarized once during this campaign. A smart person would beef up their security after that. They'll run into two sets of super mutants on each floor. They'll consist of two brutes and three regular super mutants, and in case you need those stats again, they're on page 366. Once they've dealt with the security, it's just a matter of finding O'Reilly. Now, our groups are going to be smart about this. Since they know about the secret door, they're probably going to hit both offices at once to make sure O'Reilly doesn't escape. And that would turn out to be a wise choice, since that's exactly what he'll be trying to do when the group busts through the doors. The group coming in the office will have to deal with another super mutant brute, but the other group will catch O'Reilly as he comes through the secret door. He's panicked, and he didn't think to grab a gun, so he'll surrender almost immediately. What he won't do is call off the mutant, so the group will have to deal with it. Oh, and it goes to reason that while all of this is going on, the humans who work in the office are hauling tail to get out of there, and they will not engage the group in any way, shape, or form, so don't worry about having them involved. Anyway, the group's got O'Reilly. Now it's time to decide how they want to do this. The easiest way would be to put a bullet in the center of his forehead and end it. And at that point, he'll be dead and there won't be anybody to pay the bounty, which means it's canceled. Now, they'd need to toss his body out of the third floor window or drag it out the front doors when they leave. But either way, he'd be public. If your group happens to be the type that doesn't really like killing, first off, how'd they survive this long? But there is an option. They can draw up a notice calling off the bounty and force O'Reilly to sign it. If it's taken a diamond pass, Victor could make sure it gets out to all of those who would need to see it, including all of the job boards in the area. The problem with that is that O'Reilly would still be alive, so there's always the possibility he comes back to bite him in the butt down the line. Now, sure, they can threaten him, and he'll make whatever promises he needs to in order to get out of there, but the simple fact is that leaving him alive will be a bad idea for the group, but it is their call to make. With O'Reilly out of the picture one way or the other, they've got time to search his office for stuff to haul off. No weapons or armor, but they can grab a half a dozen stim packs, a dozen doses of Radaway, 500 caps, and assorted decorations that'll sell for another 500, and that's the price they'll get, no negotiations. 
At that point, they could go back to Victor and see if he's interested in letting them take the job he was considering sending them on to get away from things as payment for the job they owe him. Seeing as how they just killed a mob boss in his own office, Victor will agree that it's probably a wise thing and gives them the details. Remember, though, this is the job they get no payment from, and that's if they owed him a favor. If they didn't owe him a favor, there's payment, we'll deal with it later. Now, if this is the option they take from the beginning, well, we'll get to the job momentarily because it's the job the third option will also present to them, so no need to write it up twice. The only difference is who's sending them on the job and who they're bringing the goods to. Melanie Zembrowski is the owner of the Old Limp Brewery, which is a few minutes south and west of Soulard. In our world, it hasn't been a functioning brewery for about uh, 70 years or so. But in this world, it survived and now thrives as there aren't a whole lot of breweries left in the country. So Lemp beer is popular all across the USA when you can find it. It'll take the group about a half an hour or so to get there from the pass. And we'll toss in a feral ghoul attack on the way there. Two ghouls for each group member. The Lemp Brewery sits amongst a large swath of debris, but the buildings themselves appear to be as solid as the day they were built. That's mostly because the owners of the brewery ordered it to be rebuilt as soon as people started coming out of the woodwork after the bombings, and Zembrowski herself has paid for some renovations. The front entrance to the offices is easy to find, and the receptionist will greet them warmly, though she does note all the weapons they're carrying. She'll ask him to wait while she summons Ms. Zombrowski, who arrives a few minutes later. You'll note I didn't get into the usual part concerning how the group would present themselves. At this point, it's safe to assume they'll say they're there to see her because they'd like to talk business. And with the way they're dressed, there's no question what that business is. Melanie Zombrowski is 10 feet of fury in a 5-foot package. She carries her 125 pounds in what appears to be solid muscle. And it appears that way because she's wearing a black t-shirt that shows off the muscles in her arms. Her black cargo pants and black boots give her the appearance of a soldier of some type. And her red hair is pulled back into a tight, serious bun. She wears no makeup, but her freckles are apparent even from a distance as she approaches. She shakes each group member's hand as they introduce themselves and suggests they follow her to her office so we can speak privately. She leads them down a short hallway, cuts a left at the T, then escorts them to the large corner office. If the group is five members or smaller, there's enough chairs for all of them. Otherwise, someone will have to stand. She offers beverages, but only purified water or dirty water if you've got any ghouls in the group. She doesn't wait for the group to state their business. She just goes ahead and speaks first. I know who you are, and I suspect I know why you're here. You're interested in seeing if I'd be willing to work with you to deal with that business Barnabas O'Reilly has with you. She'll wait for an acknowledgement of some sort before continuing, and she doesn't give them more than a word or two before she does. Look, I don't know who gave you the impression that I'd be willing to work against Barnabas. Frankly, I don't care. Truth is, whoever said that was correct. Little bastard cost me some serious caps last month, and I'd love nothing better than to make him pay me back by taking your heads off the chopping block. She'll tell him why. Whatever it was you did to him or took from him, it really got to him. After that group stole that thing out of his office, he got paranoid. So when you hit that house on the hill, it sent him over the edge. He's been acting paranoid ever since. So if I can roll in and act all sympathetic towards him, he'll be more than happy to give me whatever I want. Her happy face turns somewhat disgusted as she continues. But the thought of getting that close to the little creep turns my stomach. So to make that happen, I need something from you. Of course, you already figured that out, right? When the group answers in the affirmative, she'll get to the point. 
I have a small shop in Lime that handles selling my beer and some other items. Lately, they've been having issues with a group of raiders coming in, smashing the place up, and stealing my product. Now, normally, I just send a group of my troubleshooters down there, have the trouble shot. But since I'd have to pay them and you need a favor, I think it's only fair that you head down there and shoot the trouble for me. Now, the group can ask about the specifics, and here they are. The shop's called the Bird's Eye View, and the address is the corner of Telegraph and West Holden Avenue. When they get there, they'll want to speak with Jennings Thompson, who's the boss of the site. He will give them the information that they need to do their job, and he'll provide them with a confirmation note when the job is completed, which they will then bring back to her. She makes it clear she's not concerned with the return of stolen items. As far as she's concerned, they can keep anything they get from the Raiders. She just wants them dead, plain and simple. And if the group has an issue with that, she makes it very clear the only way she's going to help them is if they do this job for her. And agreeing to do the job is the only way they get out of the brewery, since if she can't use them for herself, she'll hand them over to Barnabas for the reward. I mean, she may hate him, but caps are caps, kids. Now, the group could fight their way out of it. She's got a couple of dozen Protectron robots to fight them, but by this point, Protectrons aren't really going to be that big of a hassle for this group, even if they'd be fighting them six at a time. So if this is the way it goes, they could fight their way out and head back to the past to get the job from Victor. However, this will complicate things a bit, since Melanie will now also be looking for the group in order to cash in on the bounty. This also provides me with a spot to alter things a bit if they're taking this job from Victor at the start. In that case, the bird's eye view is Victor's shop that he set up to try to get a foothold in the south. Otherwise, everything else is the same. If the group is getting the job from Victor after meeting with Melanie, change the name of the shop to the bargain bin and set it on the other corner of the street. You'd also change the name of the operator to Jessica Danforth. But the group will take the job the first go around from either Victor or Melanie. I'm sure of that, so we'll proceed. It's about a nine-mile walk to Lime from their current position, regardless of whether it's the pass or the brewery. To make things interesting, there will be two encounters on the route. One will be with a team of Garson tactical men, totaling one more than the number of group members, and we'll use the Brotherhood of Steel stats we've used before. Those are on page 383. Garson is still a bit annoyed with the group, but rather than just put a bounty out on them, they fanned their men out around the area, and the group just happened to run into them. Yeah, I know, right? And no, it's not a coincidence. We'll get to that later. The second encounter will be with an equal number of mercenaries to the number of group members, and those stats are on page 392. After they finish the second encounter, they've got about a half a mile to their destination, and they see the sun start to dip in the west as they get there. The bird's eye view is not a large store. The group has seen larger spots inside Diamond Pass. It looks like somebody took three decent-sized school buses, welded them together, removed the inner walls, and put a business in there. But despite the size, the number of people coming into and out of the place is impressive. They make their way in and they notice that the place is packed with goods. A tall, well-built African-American man is standing at the counter and he calls out to greet the group. Good afternoon. Name's Jennings Thompson. Welcome to the Bird's Eye View. What can we get for you today? When the group tells him why they're there, he'll let out a sigh of relief. Then he asks them to lock the doors so they could talk without being disturbed. He comes out from behind the counter, leans on it, and speaks. First off, I apologize for not having anywhere for y'all to sit. We don't do that kind of business here. I'm guessing Melanie told you what's been going on. Group of raiders calling themselves the Southern Gentlemen keep tearing this place up and stealing all my stock. Especially the beer. Bastards love that brew. 
Melanie's trying to get me some turrets to put in here to protect the place, but while we wait, I've been sleeping here to try to hold them off, or at least to make sure they don't take everything. He'll report what he knows. He's not sure exactly where the gentlemen call home, but he's heard rumors they've set up shop the cemetery about a half a mile south of this shop. He also has no idea of how many of them there are, as they only come forward at a time to attack the bus. After all, there's only him there to stop them, and he's primarily there to make sure they don't take everything. What he can say for sure is that these aren't your typical knuckleheads. He's pretty sure a couple of them were better armored than what he's seen in the past, and he also remembers a couple of them acting like they were on the psycho or something. He also remembers them pointing shotguns at him, so there's that as well. That's what he's got, and he will apologize for not having anything else. The group doesn't have a whole lot to go on, but with the sun falling, they've got two choices. Hit it now, or wait to see who comes, hit them, then trail back to the cemetery and take the rest out. Let's lay out the overall picture, and we'll work this depending on how the group decides to play it. There are 12 members of the Southern Gentlemen, four Raider Scavers, stats on page 389, four Raider Psychos, stats on page 388, three Raiders, stats on page 386, and one Raider Boss, stats on page 387. Now, they decide to wait and see who hits. It'll be two Raider Scavers, a Psycho, and a regular Raider. That should be a pretty easy fight for them, and when they're done, they'll be able to head to the cemetery to take the rest out. If they decide to hit first, then they'll get all 12 at once. Now, in our time, the cemetery on this spot is rather large. For our purposes, though, we're not going to use a lot of it. If they hit it full, the three Raiders plus the four Psychos will be on guard patrol, and they'll run into them at just about the same time. The four Scavers and the boss will be in the mausoleum, with the boss using it as cover. Now, should the group wait, take out the four who come, then follow, pull two of the psychos and put them on the mausoleum to protect the boss. Either way, they'll have two fights in the cemetery. Once it's done, they can bring the head of the boss to Jennings as proof they did the job they were asked to do. He will gladly write up a confirmation note for them to take back with them. He'll also offer to whip them up something to eat and a couple of drinks that they'd like, especially since they probably don't want to make the trek back north in the dark. If they do, it'll be four encounters with feral ghouls, one for each group member. Again, there's a reason the group needs to be careful about traveling at night. Otherwise, they can head out at first light and they'll get to either the brewery or the pass. We'll start with the brewery option. Melanie seems rather surprised to see them, though she'll admit that's because she'd been under the impression the Raider gang was rather tough and ruthless. We're not going to make rolls here, but it'll be pretty obvious she's the one who notified Garson about the group, though she'll deny it until the day she dies. But she will honor her word. She asks where she could send word of her success to, and unless the group has a base of operations, victors would make the most sense. She assures them she will make sure they get the word as soon as she's succeeded. If it's Victor they go back to, he'll be surprised by the Garson deal. And it's genuine. He certainly didn't inform on them, but he assures the group he and Bruno will check into it, and he promises that when he finds out who did it, heads will roll. Victor will also thank them for helping to save his business in Lime and declares their favor paid. If it's the favor to get them off the hook with O'Reilly, Victor will inform them he's spoken to a few of his friends and they've already put the pressure on Barnabas to pull the bounty, making it clear that he'll find it very difficult to continue doing business in town if he doesn't. If this is the favor they took to clear their ledger with Victor, he'll pull out the vodka, pour shots for everyone, and toast to their debt being cleared. 
And for me, that's a good spot to stop the build for this week. Next week, we'll get the group back on the job board and see what kind of trouble we can get them into. Now it's time to recap what my group did with our build during last week's session. To set that up, we need to recap what they actually did the previous session. We began with the group witnessing the explosion of the Garson Tactical Shop, then heading back into the heart of downtown. While on their way back, they decided to put eyeballs on the Opera House since it was starting to get dark and they wanted a second look. They realized that the outside security seems a bit lighter at night, and they noted that for future reference. Rather than heading back to the past, they decided to head to the landing to rescue Juliet, and thanks to Tyler's robot being a pre-war model from the area, he had blueprints of the building they were being sent to. Going over those, the group first decided to breach the building from the one behind it, but when that failed, they entered through the ventilation access in the roof. Max did a very cool thing by using missiles as grenades, basically wiping out all of the guards as they drew them outside, while Jim, Aniston, and Gabe took care of the Overseer. Jim took control of the Protectrons inside and used them to rescue Juliet. However, he also managed to set off the auto-destruct in the building, and they all made it out just before the blast. Ultimately, the group got Juliet returned home, but since she's been injected with the super mutant formula and is running out of time, the group decided to infiltrate the Jessup's chemical facility at Union Station to find the chemicals needed to make the antidote. And that was where we picked up this past session. So as we began the session, the group was getting ready to enter the Jessup Chemicals facility at Union Station. They got in line, got to the door, and as we rode it up in the section on them accessing the facility, they managed to get in. Once inside, both Jim and Tyler started scanning the facility to give the group an idea of what was where, and they figured out the chemical production floor was on the ground floor, which meant that offices were probably the next level up. Now, the group decided they weren't really sure on how much access their new badges gave them, so they decided to head up to security or another important-looking office and see about hacking a computer to give themselves better access to the building. They decided that the security office probably wasn't going to be an option. They were right. So they found the office of a supervisor, noted nobody was in it, and Gabe went in with Jim to hack a computer. Now, the idea was to do three things, and while I failed to note one of them in my notes, the two they accomplished was to give themselves access to the entire building and, at Jim's suggestion, corrupt the files concerning garbage so that it would shut down. He also had Gabe delete some of that file from the system so that hopefully Jessup could no longer produce it. Now, there's a whole lot there that we didn't build out, but by this point, I'm pretty sure you're used to hearing me say it. I decided that for Gabe to do what they wanted him to do, he was going to need five successes on his intelligence plus science roll. So he bought a couple of dice and got assistance. Total successes, six. So needless to say, they got what they wanted. Gabe was also able to locate the chemicals they needed to take back for the serum Paul needed to stop the super mutant formula from taking hold of Juliet. The only potential issue is that they were located in the supervisor's office on the chemical production floor. However, when they entered the floor, they noted that most of the important looking folks down there were distracted by the sudden seizing up of the machinery and were trying to figure out what had happened. As Jim noted, they'd created a distraction without really intending to. And yes, that was me improvising. But if you think about it, it makes sense. I mean, they did want to stop production and they did corrupt the files. They didn't specify files. So I went with a combination and unintentionally created the distraction for them. They made their way to the office. Jim entered, scanned the room, and realized that all of the chemical samples were hidden behind shelves that would slide away. 
They opened it, found what they needed, and took two of each, then took a moment to decide whether or not they wanted to grab anything else. Since there were no completed chemicals in there, they decided to let it be. Coming out of the office, they were noticed by a supervisor who attempted to question them about why they were there. Jim wasted no time announcing they were there to check up on security protocols, then asked the man what he'd been doing about 20 minutes earlier. He also acted glitchy while he was speaking, which sort of threw the supervisor off. Now, technically, I should have had Jim roll on this, but I decided instead to roll for the supervisor. Needless to say, I got no successes, so I had him back off a bit and allow the group on their way unmolested. They headed out of the facility and off to Paul, where they delivered the chemicals and waited around until he'd given Juliet her first dose. He then gave them 2,000 caps, which, as he said, was everything I have. Now, we wrote that in there. I just don't remember at what point. And I have to note that I'd written that I was really only expecting the group to take about half. They took it all, so that's on me. With that mission accomplished, they had one more off their list to take care of, so they headed off to the Opera House. Once there, they discussed their options for entering the building. Going in through the front was quickly dismissed, as Scott noted that even though there wasn't anyone outside, going in from the ground floor would cause them to have to deal with everything between them and the office. They considered the window washer's rig for a few minutes, then Jim came up with an idea of his own. He glided up to window level, then made his way around until he found the office. He noted the clock sitting on the desk and a sleeping super mutant. And he acted. He busted through the window and had grabbed the clock before the mutant knew what had happened. It got a shot off, but with Jim's various modifications, it did no damage. As he flew out the window, he called out, object retrieved, object retrieved, and then hauled tailed towards their destination. Tyler quickly realized that since he looks a lot like Jim, he'd better haul butt out of there too, and he did the same thing. The rest of the group knew they needed to move, but Scott decided to leave his Jessup's Chemicals ID card on the broken glass so as to throw suspicion away from the group. Then the rest of the group took an alternate route back to Corinth and Igmon. Once there, the group returned the clock and got their caps. Now, at this point, I need to note it's quite apparent that my group did not latch onto the Jackson Denman hooked the way I'd hoped, so I'm going to have to find another way to bring him in at the level I intended to. I sort of started sowing the seeds for it during this game, but it's quite apparent that I'm going to have to cook up some additional material in order to make that work. When I get that done, I'll cut a special episode of this podcast to explain what I've done and how it should work. Anyway, getting back to the game. Flush with caps, the group decided to head to Diamond Pass to spend them. I also had them level up while they were at it since the game was on break anyway while they worked out what they wanted. I should also note that they managed to bust my nothing at book value policy due to some exceptional roles for Clayton. I mean, me making roles for Clayton's character since he wasn't there. Yeah, this is going to be another one of those great roles when I roll for missing players, lousy roles when I roll for me kind of games. As they wrapped up their purchases, I had Otto approach the group to let him know that Victor needed to see them. Once in his office, Victor reported that he's been trying to get as much information as he could on the food additives Jessup Chemicals has been putting into food and beverages so he can figure out how to counter it. His information has led him to the Jessup Chemicals facility at the Dome, and he'd like the group to go get it for him. He made the deal for 300 caps for all of the information concerning that, as well as an additional 300 caps for information on other things they could find. He made it clear that the second 300 needed to bring a decent amount of information, and the group readily agreed. Since they were all still in their Jessup's Chemicals gear, they decided it should be fairly easy to get into the dome. 
They waited in line, but I decided to mess with them a little bit when they got to the guards. See, they decided to just tell the guards that they were there to get into the Jessup Chemicals facility. And I decided the guards on the outside have no idea what that is. So the guards messed with them a bit. But as I saw it was going to go south quickly, I again played Clayton's character and smoothed things over. I also realized after the fact that the group seemed to be under the impression that the entire dome was the facility, which those of you who caught the episode where we built this out know it's not the case. They got inside and thanks to the new beefed up sensors both Jim and Tyler have, quickly figured out which door they needed to use to get onto the concourse. Jim and Tyler elevated to the edge of the next level to see what was going on, while the rest of the group made their way around to the ramp up. The robots joined them quickly. This was the point that the group decided to just flaunt their Jessup credentials, which got them past the guards with no issues and got them into the office, which was as trashed as we wrote it up to be. When they discovered the synth, Gabe decided to double tap it because he did not trust it. I also had it set up where the entire mainframe was destroyed, though Gabe making a hellacious roll gave me the idea to give him a little something. So I told him there was one server that wasn't completely shot up. He decided to plug Tyler into it, and Tyler immediately realized there was a virus or some corruption in the server, so he was disconnected. Needing a computer that nobody really cares about sent them back to Victor, who provided them with the computer in his storage facility. They plugged in and Gabe managed to save some of the data, though the only thing of significance he got was an order to all Jessup facilities to forward all files to the Barnes Hospital location and wipe the drives immediately due to a data breach at one of the other facilities. In truth, I meant to say that it was from two branches, but yeah, well, I didn't. Victor's still interested in the information, so he provided the group with a thought on accessing the facility, which is the rope from the parking garage to the roof plan we wrote up during that session. However, the group has an idea of its own. Since the data had to be wirelessly transmitted, the thought is that perhaps a higher-ranking member of the team would have a Pip-Boy or some other device, which would theoretically mean that device would link into the wireless network, which would mean, again, in theory, they could access the information without ever having to gain access into the building. So we wrap the session at that point, and that's where we'll pick up in a month. Yeah, a month. No game in two weeks because Scott's son's band is playing that night. Oh, and if you happen to live in the St. Louis metro area, the concert's at Pops on Saturday, April 8th. Doors open at 6, show starts at 7. Make sure you let them know you're there to see Brave New World, as the concert is a sort of showcase from which one of the bands will make the Point Fest show this summer. All right. In the meanwhile, check out our other fine podcast, Role Playing History. This week, I'm telling stories about some of my favorite memories of gaming throughout my 40 plus years of doing this. And I think a few of them might resonate with you. Role Playing History is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgmproductions.net. All Fallout role-playing game materials referenced on this show are the trademarked and copyrighted properties of Modifius Entertainment through their license with Bethesda Games and are used on this show for entertainment purposes only. If you're interested in checking out all of the fine products produced by Modifius, check out their website, modiphius.net. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your royalty-free, license-free music needs. 
Bad GM's Campaign Build Along is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash Bad GM Prod, on Twitter at Bad GMP, YouTube and Tumblr it's Bad GM Productions, email badgmproductions at gmail.com, and online it's badgmproductions.net. Next week, we build, build, build. But that's next week. Until then, I'm the Bad GM Wayne Davis, and I'll see you at the game table.